Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about multiple myeloma with Dr. Terry Parker. Dr. Parker is an assistant professor of hematology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. So, Terry, let's start by you telling us a little bit about what exactly is multiple myeloma. Yeah, so multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. So it's actually derived or proliferation of plasma cells. And I tell my patients, plasma cells is a normal blood component. We all have it. It's just that individuals with multiple myeloma have too many cancerous plasma cells, if you will. And so, so what? So what are the presenting symptoms? Yeah. So people can present in a variety of ways. I think that's one of the things that makes multiple myeloma so interesting is it's very heterogeneous in its presentation and how it affects patients. So no two individuals may present the same or have the same symptoms. For example, a lot of patients may actually be asymptomatic, meaning this is picked up on routine laboratory studies or symptoms that they may present to their primary care physician with or to another specialist. So some of the things that we can often see is if someone is tired or has fatigue, that could be an indication that their red blood cell count is low or anemia, which again can be picked up by symptoms or just a simple blood test if they're having a routine uh, follow-up appointment with their primary care physician. Other more severe symptoms that we can see that if patients present with could include kidney failure, or an elevated uh, abnormal kidney function. Other things could be bone lesions, so pain in a specific bone. Worst case scenario, a fracture of that bone can be some of the more extreme presentations. So wait a minute. A lot of people are going to have fatigue, and they may have anemia, maybe they're iron deficient or whatever. Um, And people may have kidney failure because they're diabetic or they have high blood pressure. And people may fracture bones because Mm -hmm. they're osteoporotic or they are involved in a trauma. How, How do we know when we should be getting worried about this potential blood cancer? Yeah, that's a very good question. So a lot of times it's that the individual will have one of these symptoms that cannot otherwise be explained, Mm. meaning their doctor has gone through the evaluation. They say, your kidney dysfunction is not because of diabetic uh, nephropathy, as you mentioned, or high blood pressure. There's really not a good explanation. And that's when they kind of look outside the box and say, should we be considering multiple myeloma in our differential or as a cause to these symptoms? So most people don't get their initial but they'll be referred to a hematologist such as myself or one of my colleagues. And at that point, we do a very thorough evaluation. So that evaluation to diagnose an individual with multiple myeloma includes blood work, urine studies, often imaging to look at the bones to make sure we don't see any lesions. And then also a bone marrow biopsy is required for the diagnosis. 
So what kind of blood work are you doing? Are you doing just a routine CBC? No, we do very specific. So we will do a CBC, which is to look for anemia. We'll do a comprehensive metabolic panel, which looks at their kidney function, their liver function, and also the total protein. We're looking to see if that is elevated. And then we do very specific studies for multiple myeloma. So those studies include what's known as a serum protein electrophoresis, looking at what type of protein it is. Is it what we call a monoclonal protein, meaning just one type of protein that's being produced? We look at what's called a serum immunofixation. We can look at the quantitative immunoglobulins, serum-free light chain. So we can measure all of these individual components to really help us put the picture together. And we do the same studies in the urine as well. So... So when you think about that protein electrophoresis, um, which helps you to kind of see whether you've got this peak, Mm -hmm. right, Um, that would give you a clue that it's multiple myeloma, would you do that automatically or would you do that only if the person has elevated proteins? We will typically do that if the person, one, has an elevated protein or if they have a constellation of symptoms that is very concerning clinically to us despite a normal protein. Mm. We do see some patients who present and don't have an elevation in total protein, but otherwise we say have read the textbook, meaning they present with all the classic kind of findings that raises our suspicion. Mm-hmm. And so, so if you had an elevated protein, for example, on a routine blood test, but you were otherwise asymptomatic, your family doctor may refer you to a hematologist if they couldn't find another explanation for that. Correct. So we will see a lot of people who are asymptomatic, meaning they go and see their primary care physician for the once-a-year appointment. They're noted to have an increased total protein on blood work, and that prompts the referral. And then some of those individuals we will actually diagnose with something called a monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, or MGUS, which is considered to be a precancerous condition. And we do follow those individuals to make sure that there is no evolution into multiple myeloma or progression. So some people are going to be completely asymptomatic and quite unexpectedly for them, they're going to walk out of their doctor's office with an appointment to you. Mm -hmm. Other people are going to have serious problems. They're going to have fractured a bone or they're going to have kidney failure or they're going to have anemia and they're going to be referred to you for the same thing. Either way, they can end up with the same diagnosis of multiple myeloma. Correct. That's, again, what I think makes it so fascinating and so interesting to care for. Um, As, again, no two patients are the same and it has a very wide range of symptomatology. And so what happens then? So they come to you, you've worked them up, you've done your wide spectrum of blood work and your urine analysis, and you come to the conclusion that they have multiple myeloma. What happens then? So then we talk to the patient about treatment. Um, And as you said, a lot of times it can be a little bit of a shock to the system for someone who's asymptomatic. So it's important to have a good support system in place. Uh, Support groups are very uh, prevalent here at Yale and also throughout the country to really help these patients deal with their due diagnosis. And then we sit down and have a good conversation about what treatment options there are for them. That treatment usually includes a variety of com- a combination or a variety of medications. Typically, we will start with a three-drug regimen. Um, you can consider it chemotherapy, but it's a little bit more directed towards the plasma cells. 
Tell me more about that. What do you mean by more directed towards the plasma cells? Yeah, so I feel as though people, when they think of classic chemotherapy, sometimes conjure up these nightmares Mm -hmm. as far as symptoms go. They think of hair loss. They think of bad nausea, bad vomiting, if you will. So our treatments don't really elicit those side effects. So because they are aimed to be more targeted to eradicate the plasma cell, we oftentimes do not see kind of those classic side effects that people think of when they hear the word chemotherapy. And so, but are these targeted therapies, like, I mean, we talk a lot on this show about looking for particular genetic mutations and particular genomic changes, and then we've got targeted therapies that aim for that particular mutation. Is it the same way in multiple myeloma, or is this really more a chemotherapeutic regimen that doesn't have all of the side effects because it's more targeted to blood cells? So it's a little bit of both, I would say. So we're not to the point, although we're very hopeful, as far as targeting specific mutations in multiple myeloma or genetic abnormalities, as you just pointed out. So this is really targeted to kind of mechanisms and biology in the plasma cell, Mm -hmm. but it's not specific to one person's cancer over the other, Mm -hmm. meaning we use the same type of therapy in all comers who have multiple myeloma. So we're not that patient-specific yet. And so when we talk about multiple myeloma being a cancer of the plasma cell, and one of the things you mentioned as part of the workup is a bone marrow biopsy. Can you talk more about what exactly a bone marrow biopsy is and why that's important? Is that where plasma cells come from? Yeah, so you can kind of say it's their home, if you will, or that's where they live. So we don't see plasma cells circulating, or we shouldn't. So the only way to really get at how many abnormal plasma cells there are, or what is that percentage, is to do a bone marrow biopsy. So all the blood work that we do, the urine studies, that's representative, we believe, of what's going on because it's a product of the plasma cells. It's being produced by, but obviously we have to go to the source to really get the answer. So a bone marrow biopsy can get a bad rap, um, especially because people are very concerned about the pain and have anxiety related to that. Typically, we will do a bone marrow biopsy at bedside, meaning we set up an appointment for the patient. It's done in a clinic in an outpatient setting. Um, most people are, you know, have some minor discomfort following the procedure, but nothing that lasts usually longer than 24 to 48 hours at the site. Patients have um, come in. We always recommend that they have someone there for moral support, but most of the time they would be able to drive themselves back, um, just speaking kind of how things go, because that's a big question people ask you is, you know, what am I going to be able to do? How am I going to be able to function? Um, And a small sample of the bone itself and the bone marrow, which is kind of the ooey-gooey center, if you will, is taken from the uh, back of the hip. Um, either the left side or the right side, whatever is best anatomically or if the patient has a preference for it. But the procedure itself takes about 20 to 30 minutes total. So no general anesthesia, no conscious sedation, just local? Yeah, we just do local. So I often uh, compare it to people going to the dentist. Um, Whether that's a good analogy or not, that's what most people, um, the most likely thing they have experienced, meaning If you go to the dentist, you get a local anesthetic. So you're awake and you feel pressure and you know what's going on, but it should not be that excruciating pain. And that's similar to when we do a bone marrow. It's local anesthetic. You should feel pressure, be aware of what's going on, but it should not be excruciating sharp pain. 
And so you do the bone marrow biopsy and you talk to the patient about these therapies that are really targeted to the mechanisms pertinent to plasma cells. Um, but that's primarily chemotherapy. In many other cancers, we talk about surgery and radiation. Now, presumably, surgery has less of a role in a blood cancer, but does radiation play a role in multiple myeloma? So radiation can play a role, and I say can because it's not something that we would go to up front because this is considered a blood cancer. So we need to treat it systemically. However, if a person has a lesion in their bone that's caused by destruction from the myeloma, or if they have a mass that can be known as a plasmacytoma, meaning a mass composed of plasma cells, that can be very painful for a patient. If systemic therapy is either not effective or if the lesion is destructive to the point we're concerned about a potential fracture of the bone, then radiation plays a very important role to locally control that area of pain and help prevent fracture. So again, it's not something that we would consider in every individual because everyone presents differently, but if someone did have a plasma cytoma, so again, a collection of plasma cells outside of the marrow or a destructive lesion, then we would recommend and work with our radiation oncology colleagues. So multiple myeloma, as opposed to many solid tumors, is a cancer of the blood. So therefore, can it really metastasize? It can't really metastasize anywhere because it's already in the blood, right? Yes, it's already in the blood, um, but it can go outside of the blood components or outside of the bone marrow, if you will. So people can have what we call extramedullary disease, which is disease that has escaped or gone outside of the marrow. And that's when they present with these plasma cytomas. A lot of times it's more in individuals who have more advanced disease who are unfortunately not responding to therapies. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about advances in multiple myeloma with my guest, Dr. Terry Parker. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about colorectal cancer. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable. And as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Terry Parker. We're talking about advances in multiple myeloma. Now, before the break, we talked a little bit about how multiple myeloma presents and that the treatment really is systemic therapy. But, Terry, I wonder if we can take a step back and say, who are the people who really present with this disease? I mean, is this uh, a disease that anybody can get? Is it a disease of childhood? Is it a disease of older individuals? Is there a racial predilection? Tell me about the epidemiology. Yeah. So multiple myeloma, when you look at all comers, meaning solid tumor and our liquid or blood cancers, is the 14th most common cancer that we see. 
So roughly about 1.8% of all new cancer diagnoses in the United States will be multiple myeloma. Hmm. But when we really look at who gets multiple myeloma, it's really a disease of the elderly. The median age at diagnosis is 69, so it's not something that we're seeing in childhood or adolescence, but obviously we do have outliers, meaning we do have patients who are in their 30s, unfortunately, who have this disease. It has a slightly more male predilection versus female, very slight, and we do see it more common in people who are on African-American descent. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when these people get multiple myeloma, and they're treated with systemic therapy. How are they followed? Yeah, so our patients are followed very closely. Someone to say almost too closely, they have to come to see us in clinic. Um, But our treatment typically consists of what we call cycles of chemotherapy or cycles of systemic therapy. Now a cycle can vary depending on the type of therapy that's chosen for that individual. But typically, a cycle of therapy would be three to four weeks Mm -hmm. for most of our induction or frontline regimens. So most people will be in clinic once a week, seeing the nursing team, seeing myself, a physician assistant, for example, to really try to be aggressive in their upfront treatments. Now, if a person goes into a remission, we are treating multiple myeloma more of a chronic disease. So how do you know when somebody's gone into remission? I mean, do you give a certain number of cycles and then do a blood test to see whether the protein count has gone down? Or do people get routine blood work at every cycle? How does this all work? Yeah, that's a good question. We will do blood work at each cycle, the start of each cycle of therapy, because obviously we don't want to treat somebody if it's not effective. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure we are really benefiting the patient with this treatment. So we will typically check the same labs that we did for diagnosis prior to each cycle of their treatment. And we have very strict definitions as far as what kind of reduction do we need to see to label someone in remission? So we need to make sure that we eradicate that protein from the blood to even begin to think about a complete remission. And a bone marrow biopsy would be required again to make sure we did not see any abnormal plasma cells. So you do this blood work, you don't see any plasma cells, you get another bone marrow biopsy, you don't see any plasma cells, and then you say to the patient, congratulations, you're in complete remission. But we still need to treat you. <laughs> but we still need to treat you. So, yes. so tell me more about that because, yeah. I mean, I can I can foresee that patients would say, woohoo, complete remission, I'm home free, yeah. and you say not so fast. Yeah. So typically we have a few different routes we can take. So if someone gets induction therapy, we tend to treat them for a set number of cycles. Again, I was talking about that three to four week period would be mm-hmm. considered a cycle. We will often then, depending on the patient's age, their comorbidities, meaning what other medical problems do they have, evaluate them for whether or not we think an autologous stem cell transplant is in the cards. I personally do not transplant patients, but I work closely with some of my transplant colleagues here to make that decision. So let's talk about that. What exactly is autologous stem cell transplant? Yeah. And when would somebody think about doing that? Because so far, we've really talked about just chemotherapy. Yeah. So the point of autologous stem cell transplant is a little bit of a misnomer. So the stem cells that are collected are the patient's own. And so the purpose of it is to be able to give higher doses of chemotherapy. So typically, a person may get induction or frontline therapy, several cycles, 
average is four to five, and then they would be given a medication to try to stimulate white blood cell production to collect stem cells. Those stem cells are their own. Stem cells can grow up to be any cell that they want, so to speak, kind of like the seeds of the marrow, if you will. The stem cells can either be frozen and reserved um, for another day, or a patient can then go through high-dose therapy, and then they're given their stem cells back to shorten the period where they really have no cells. So to shorten the period that they require transfusion support, shorten that period that they're at increased risk for infection. Does everybody need a stem cell transplant? What if you gave people induction chemotherapy and you found that they went into complete remission? Does that ever happen? That can happen. And then we would still recommend collecting the stem cells. That way we had them. The more therapy someone gets, it may be harder to collect their stem cells, say, several years later. So we tend to always encourage stem cell collection. But if someone were to go into a complete remission just with their induction therapy, we could then proceed to what we call a maintenance therapy to try to maintain that response and save the stem cells for a future date if they were ever required. So even if you get a complete remission, you still need this maintenance therapy, which is chemo? So it is a type of chemo. So we do believe that people do benefit from maintenance. And there are studies out there that show that people do have an improvement in their survival when they're placed on maintenance versus nothing. And so here in the United States, we believe in maintenance, and most individuals, unless there's, you know, extenuating circumstances, um, intolerability, will go onto a maintenance regimen. That maintenance regimen is often a medication that they've seen in the induction period, but instead of using three drugs, we use one, and at much lower doses. But they're still going to get therapy every three or four weeks, right? Every cycle. So ideally, when we go on to maintenance, we tend to try to use an oral medication. Ah. And that's usually typically given an example. Again, it can vary from patient to patient, but a medication for three weeks in a row, then a week off. Mm -hmm. So then people are coming to clinic once a month, so it's not as strenuous as that once-a-week appointment, depending on what treatment they're getting. But we really do tell individuals that we're trying to treat this as a chronic disease. Right. Similar to, say, they had high blood pressure or diabetes, they would be on some medication to control that disease, and then coming in with routine follow-ups and check-ins to make sure that medication was still effective and they weren't having side effects from the treatment. So it's good that it's an oral medication because I can imagine that if it was IV chemotherapy, that would be kind of a bummer. Yeah, that would be very stressful. And some individuals who are high risk, we do tend to give them a subcutaneous injection. So it's a little bit um, more onerous as far as coming to clinics, still having treatment, but we try to do the least invasive as possible, obviously keeping in mind quality of life and lifestyle for the patient. So speaking of quality of life, let's talk about quantity of life. How long do patients with multiple myeloma live? What's the prognosis? Yeah. So we're actually doing much better in that regard. If you look at data compared to the 1990s to now uh, the 2000s and beyond, We've improved what we call our five-year overall survival, meaning the number of patients who are still alive at that five-year mark. And again, this is probably a little bit outdated data, but if you look at the data that's kept by the United States government, the SEER data, if you will, the five-year survival currently is about 50%. But again, that's looking at patient data up to 2012, 2013. And we just had four new drugs approved in 2015. So we're having a lot more advances, a lot new medications. So I anticipate that you'll see that number continue to climb as we get the new data coming in. 
So tell me more about these new treatments and new advances. I mean, we we often talk on this show about clinical trials and how yeah. important they are and all of the new advances coming out. What are yeah. the most exciting things in multiple myeloma? Yeah. So again, as I mentioned, in 2015, we had four drugs approved by the FDA, which was a banner year uh, for multiple myeloma. And two of those drugs were monoclonal antibodies. So again, more targeted to uh, cell markers or pathology within the plasma cell, elotuzumab and daratumumab were the two drugs. And then we had two other drugs, exazimib and panobenistat. So that was 2015. Now it's 2018. So as you mentioned, we really need to continue to do clinical trials, continue to do research both in the upfront setting and in the relapsed refractory patient. Despite all these advances, we still have people who progress and we still have unanswered questions. As with most cancer drugs, when they're approved, they're approved initially in the relapsed refractory setting and then slowly make their way to more upfront treatment. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the trials now are trying to answer questions like, what is the best order for these medications? Now that we have options, should we be using them later or should we be moving them to the upfront setting? So we talked a little bit about autologous uh, stem cell transplant. And one question that people might have is, you know, you're taking people's own stem cells, you're treating them, so you're depleting their cells. And the idea is that you give them back their stem cells so that they can then recover and make new cells. But their cells ended up getting cancer. So how often is it that after an autologous stem cell transplant, your new, your stem cells that you had before that you now got back ended up getting cancer again? Yeah. So we do tell people that autologous transplant is not a cure for this disease. And if the patient's cancer comes back, it's usually because we don't eradicate all the plasma cells that are there, not that that stem cell is necessarily a bad stem cell. We often consider plasma cells, um, some people refer to them as the cockroaches of the bone marrow, meaning they're really hard to get rid of. When we give ablative chemotherapy, so really high doses of chemotherapy, say to another patient who has leukemia, when we look in their marrow, what we often see is still plasma cells. And so when people have disease that comes back after autologous transplant, it's because they still had a cell that was there. And not because the autologous stem cell was Correct. a bad stem cell. Correct. So how often do people relapse? So again, most people, when we put them through a transplant, we're trying to improve their response, meaning they may not be in a complete remission. They may have had a partial remission, which is a 50% reduction in their protein, or what we call a very good partial remission, which is a 90% reduction in their protein. So we're trying to improve upon that, meaning get them to hopefully a complete remission if we can. And then the next step would be to eradicate any minimal residual disease, which we look at via the marrow. But even if we do that, we still tell patients that it's not a cure, but a remission, and there is a percentage that can come back. We often don't quote a specific percentage because mm -hmm. it's very variable depending on the person's risk and how they responded to their therapy to begin with. So once a person gets a complete remission, whether or not they've had an autologous stem cell transplant, you put them on maintenance, and then you continue to follow their blood work. Yeah. And for some as yet undefined proportion of those patients, their cancer will come back. Yeah, and I tell, and it's a hard thing to say because I tell patients, I have some patients who have been alive for 20 years 
with multiple myeloma. But then we have some patients who have very aggressive disease, very poor risk cytogenetics, meaning just the biology of the plasma cell or that clone that's driving things just doesn't respond to any treatments, and they don't live a year. So that's why it's, you know, we try to look at how a person responds. What are they presenting? Are they presenting with a lot of disease outside of their marrow to begin with? Do they have poor risk features that we think is going to make them more resistant to our treatments? What are those poor risk features? Yeah. So poor risk features that we look at are defined by our cytogenetics. So that's part of another reason why we do the bone marrow biopsy in individuals to start and at any time that there's a progression. Because we would want to see, is it a different clone? or have they acquired any new cytogenetic abnormalities? So the ones that we are looking for that are associated with a poor risk is something called a deletion 17P, meaning they're missing a part of their 17 chromosome. Um, a translocation between chromosomes 14, 16, 14, 20, and an amplification of 1Q. So those are very specific cytogenetic abnormalities that we look for in every individual. And so if they have these, that's a clue to you that this is a bad player. But do we have novel therapies that can then target these particularly bad players? Yeah, so that's a good question and something that is still being worked out. Um, so right now, we don't necessarily treat those individuals any differently upfront, although there are clinical trials that are ongoing specifically in those high-risk individuals to try to answer that question. For example, should we be doing three drugs or four drugs, adding new novel therapies to try to come up with it. And we also tend to be more aggressive on the backside, meaning for in those individuals, our maintenance therapy may be include consolidation, meaning additional cycles of what they got in induction. And we may, again, keep them on a more aggressive regimen that includes two to three drugs versus that one drug. Dr. Terry Parker is an assistant professor of hematology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.